0: Cool. Happy Saturday, Mackenzie. Happy Saturday. So we're doing this uh, kind of heavy film today called Oppenheimer. I'm sure you've heard of it about, you know, the scientist who created this atomic weapon that has sort of the underlying message of the film is this could be the thing that eventually destroys the world. Like he mm-hmm. sets off this chain reaction that could be the doom of mankind. So with that yeah, sort of no deal. Yeah, that's sort of heavy topic in mind. What's your biggest whoopsie daisy that you've ever done?
1: <laughs> uh, I love that we're likening this to a whoopsie daisy by the way. One um, time I dropped
0: an entire pizza and it like I it fell on the concrete and it was a way that to me that's my biggest whoopsie daisy.
1: Very comparable by the way to to <laughs> setting a chain reaction
0: that implodes the world. Uh it, super it, is similar. Is your is yours deciding to watch 50 something films in a 2 month span every year. How's that Listen, going?
1: Listen, I can tell you at this moment it is. It for sure is. That's that's my biggest oopsie daisy. Yeah, it's going pretty well actually. It's uh I have watched 23 films. I know that doesn't feel like a lot cuz we're out of 53, but 23 total is a 10 a 10 film jump from where I started. So I actually don't think okay. that's
0: bad. So yeah, 30 to go. With 30 to go and you've got six weeks left
1: a little over a month yeah six weeks ish i think so it's on march we're recording this on february 3rd and it airs march 10th okay so i'm making Mm -hmm. progress i feel like pretty pretty good pacing we believe in you thank you thank you luckily obviously we are talking about oscar stuff so that helps i can multitask
0: (laughs) (laughs) is there uh from the ones that you've watched since the last time we recorded is there one specific picture that we're not talking about Where you like want people think people should go watch it before the oscars for sure
1: yeah i well there's a few to be honest that i think are really good i think some of them like to your point i think some of them we will end up talking about just based Mm -hmm. on the way these uh polls are going but i will also say one that i don't think we'll probably get to just because of the way i'm seeing people vote is the zone of interest Mm -hmm. is really really good uh it's really heavy it's also a heavy one, which again, we've talked about this on the pod before, like Oscar movies are just heavy by default. I don't know why that is. But anyway, it's very, very powerful film. And it's really uniquely done. It's actually one that I hope we do talk about on the pod at some point, for sure.
0: It's really good. All right. All right. Yeah, I know the premise on that one sounded sounded pretty dark. And nice. I hadn't really heard much about it. But with, I do see a, a handful of people voting for it in our Instagram mm-hmm. polls. Uh, we drink and we watch things. So eventually I think I will get around to it. We'll see if I get there in time for for the Oscars. but
1: I think so and I have some hot takes on ones not to recommend. so
0: we'll maybe have a
1: maybe have a separate app about that as well.
0: All right. well, let's get to it.
1: Welcome back. We drink and we watch things. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Lamar. He's back. We let him come back this time. (laughs) And uh, today we're talking about Oppenheimer as part of our Oscars February. I don't. We need a better name than that, by the way. You can't really push
0: those words together. I know. I I feel like tried
1: every combination, and we're just out. So anyway, Oscars Feb. I don't know. Whatever. But this is our our best actor conversation. We, as you all may or may not know pulled the class to see which one Mm -hmm. they wanted to talk about and this one won our best actor one we had talked about a couple others already and we will be talking about some more but uh but yeah oppenheimer came out on top for killian murphy was playing mr oppenheimer and we'll get into all that but for now what are we drinking
0: Well, I am drinking Oppenheimer's Martini, and this is historical. Like, this is actually the way that he preferred to drink them. I do think that they have them in the film as well. It's a pretty standard martini, no olives, just, you know, gin and vermouth, very heavy Mm -hmm. on the gin, but it has a lime and honey rim on it, so it adds Mm -hmm. a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of bite with the lime, and yeah, it's pretty delicious. So Oppenheimer liked to drink them, good enough for him, good enough for me. How about you?
1: I'm doing the same. I know you shared it with me, but I also looked it up because I was like, well, what should I do? Should I do something different? Should I do the same? And same thing. I just, you know, really liked the historical aspect of it that this is what he drank and you see him make it in the film which is really Mm -hmm. fun so and i i'm not a huge gin drinker to be totally transparent so i made a teeny tiny one and i definitely did not uh follow his ratio which is apparently (laughs) insane so it's
0: four ounces of gin to a tiny little splash of vermouth you're just basically having four shots of gin in one drink it's great
1: yeah, bananas, bananas. Something. Some. <laughs> I read something. It was like sixteen to one ratio is what it works out to be of like how much the splash is terrible. Anyway, so yeah, we're gonna try to stay sober through this one for you guys. But uh we'll yeah, cheers. No
0: promises. Cheers. Cheers.
1: Ooh, yeah. See, gin, not my drink. Mm-hmm. You know, not my fave. I'm gonna power. The honey you,
0: does. So I feel like honey is always a natural mixer for gin. You know, with like bees knees and whatnot. So. I feel like the honey does help the gin to not burn your throat quite as much on the way down.
1: Yeah, and I like the uh, the lime as well. I will say it does help. But yeah, the core of the gin and the vermouth are just not my vibe. I feel like you got to do, <laughs> I don't know, something fruity, really, yeah. with gin for me to like it. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. Uh, worth a shot, for sure. So let's get into it. We're going to do... Yeah. We're going to do for you guys are kind of our, I guess, our our format, our somewhat typical format of trying to not give you too many spoilers. So we want to go through, you know, the basics. We'll share the basics of, you know, who did the things and wrote the things and performed the things. And uh, and then we'll get into our spoiler section where we will go to town. Don't worry. Yeah, we will warn you. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, but with all that being said, let's do the basics. I think everybody knows who directed this, but in case you didn't, Christopher Nolan is back with an, another gem, I'd say. Like, does he make no. bad movies? I just feel like not really.
0: think no, I mean, I think I'm a fan of pretty much everything he's done. I like some better than others. Do you have a favorite, Nolan? Like, a go-to? I, I, it's hard to pick, an like, a favorite. I
1: think I have a couple contenders, but if I absolutely had to pick a favorite, it would probably be Inception.
0: Like, okay, I'm glad that you picked one because you tried to go the traditional Mackenzie route oh my of like, God. oh well, I can't pick one. But if I had, I'm glad that you finished with. If I had to, I would go with this one. You answered the question. Okay, why? Well, okay, but you. also Dark Knight Rises.
1: All right, yeah.
0: <laughs> really, to, Dark Knight Rises. I had, the had to be true
1: one? to. I had to be true to myself. No, no, I'm kidding. Dark Knight. Just, okay, <laughs> I'm just being an ass. I know. Okay. I, I it would be hard to pick a, a like actually you know what like in, in
0: that case I'll give you two you can take the Dark Knight it's like bargain bin like they just oh package it with inception in. like you get these two DVDs for ten dollars
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> nobody's
0: buying Dark Knight Rises I apologize to any fans of Dark Knight Rises out there but
1: I liked it but it's definitely Dark Knight you
0: know Dark Knight's definitely the better yeah, one for yeah. sure
1: anyway but we could talk about Christopher Nolan all day because he just he does again he just does incredible films over and over even his quote-unquote weakest films are, are not mm-hmm. weak, right? So yeah. uh, I'm super excited to do this one about him because I think it is, uh, no pun intended, kind of an opus for him, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's this huge, not just long, but huge undertaking to do this film, I think. So we'll get into to more of that, but definitely excited to see this one come out for him. He also, of course, wrote it, uh, as yep. he is wont to do. He does that with most of his films, and then also partners with people when he does his writing sometimes, but not not 100% of the time. He In this case, he did not partner with, for example, his brother is, is a, often a writing partner of his. Right. The, yeah, the, the folks that are credited here, and I don't know if it's just kind of like a courtesy credit or how involved they actually were, but the writers that are co-credited with him here are Kybird and Martin J. Sherwin who are actually the authors of the book on which this is based. So if yep. you didn't if you didn't already know, this is based on a book. It's a a biography of course about Oppenheimer, but it's entitled uh, American Pr- Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, which I think it pretty much sums up like this film and also his life. <laughs> you, know. Yeah.
0: you know me, Mackenzie, we've had this discussion a few times on the podcast. I'm kind of an idiot. So <laughs> when it comes to history and things like that... I did not know, you know, I knew who Oppenheimer was, but when this movie was announced, I didn't know this entire backstory of how he was like excommunicated, uh, sort of came back eventually, like not to spoil anything. I mean, it's a historical account, but like I I had no idea all the stuff that was tied into his life, the political things that tied into it, the scientific things. And so seeing that play out on screen was so much more interesting than I thought it would. And I thought this was going to be, not a war movie, but I thought it was going to be a race to build a bomb. Like that was going to be yeah, the plot. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it goes into so many other layers than that. That is like not the least important thing in the movie, but I feel like there are two or three storylines that are more important than the actual bomb itself.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And again, we'll get into the exact why and how, but I would say that is definitely a secondary storyline and it is it is i think maybe really easy to go make a race to the bomb movie and that's not what he did you know he got really in depth with it again i think we have to credit the source material right like and i'm sure that's why these folks are co-credited did you know it took them 25 years to write the book like it is bananas for a biography. You know, that's, that's just like how...
0: George R.R. Martin levels of commitment <laughs> exactly. to your craft. <laughs>
1: Winds of winter never coming out, guys. Uh, just get it. Just, <laughs> Sorry, just, just so you know. I uh, saw
0: a, a tweet that was like, you know, at this point, I'm not afraid. Everyone's afraid of... George R.R. R. Martin dying before he finishes the the Thrones series or Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, but it's like at this point, I'm more concerned about me dying before he finishes. For the sure. Series.
1: For sure. Yeah, it's Good. just I've accepted I've come to a place of acceptance that it's not going to happen, to be honest. But, you know listen, I get it. How do you live up to those expectations? And that also, honestly, tying it back to this is probably why it took these folks so long, right? Like, this is Mm -hmm. a really intense story to have to tell about, again, his life, but also the crux of the matter, which is that he is the architect of, you know, this bomb, one of, but the architect of this bomb that literally changed the world. So, you know, to treat that subject matter with you know sincere deference and and care is not surprising to me that it would take a really long time. But I think obviously yeah. they did a really good job. If you ever I actually haven't read the book, the source material I've read a lot about this topic, but I haven't read the original book. But I hear that it's very good, like very well done, very comprehensive. Okay. And I've also heard that this adaptation of of the content in the book is is pretty comprehensive and pretty well done. And I think it simplifies it to We'll talk about the the politics of it all a little bit, but honestly, the politics of it all, of what's going on at this time in his life and throughout his life is really complicated. And I think the film does a good job of clarifying some of those things for us that would otherwise be hard to follow, for
0: sure. And I mean, without, I know we're going to get into the cast first, but one Mm -hmm. thing that I do want to call out, and I don't, this is not a spoiler, but the way this is structured with mm. sort of, we have multiple storylines or multiple timelines happening, mm-hmm. but I, we'll get into like the way that they tell that. But I did find that the first time through, it was a little overwhelming trying to figure out when different things were happening. Mm-hmm. But I think on on rewatch, I really appreciate the structure because it does help you to latch on to all these conflicts throughout his life and sort of the parallels between himself and Strauss. And yeah, I, I dig that a lot. So I'm sure we'll dig more into that in a minute. Yeah, I think
1: it does provide some real clarity of who he is at those varying moments, right? Like the way in which he performs each of those those different phases is quite different because he's he has been changed by this experience as well. So yeah, I think you can see the difference in all those those, you know, uh in congress moments that go snap in and out, right? So but yeah, to your point, let's go through the cast really quick. Incredible cast. I think we've alluded to Yeah the incredible performance here by killian murphy it's on you know he's the eponymous central figure robert oppenheimer so he's you know the central driving force behind the story and he i think maintains your attention the entire time in that way right and it doesn't that's not that easy to do you know to to hold hold that power over the film throughout i think he really does so uh if you don't know killian murphy he's been in gosh he's been in a ton of things he's been in this is
0: his sixth christopher nolan film
1: i was gonna say he's in like everything that christopher nolan does you know but
0: the the first one where he's been cast as the lead he's been sort of like Mm -hmm. you know he was the villain in batman begins and he's made Mm -hmm. little appearances in dunkirk and whatnot but this is the first one where he carries the entire film so it's interesting You know, we're doing this back to back with Killers of the Flower Moon next week, and it's interesting to see directors latching onto their favorite actors. And in Killers, you get Scorsese using both DiCaprio and De Niro, which has been sort of his go to's for years. So it's interesting Mm -hmm. to see how, how Nolan has sort of latched on to Killian Murphy and finally gives him a chance to shine brighter than he has before here i think so and he also
1: i mean he's always incredible no matter how small his role right like he Mm -hmm. makes smaller appearances in some of other christopher nolan stuff including inception but it's a very impactful character impactful moment and i think that's true of him and everything that he does but they found the i think the right central role for him i i actually love that about christopher nolan in general as well where he does he kind of has this cast of characters that he Mm -hmm. knows that he can use in these different stories. And of course he peppers in some other folks, but it's almost like having that core company, you know, like a, like a theater company does for example. And he uses those same characters over and over and he uses them to great effect. And this is, yeah, again, I think the right central role for killing Murphy. So obviously it resulted in an Oscar nom for him. So he did a great Mm -hmm. job. We also have a few other incredible cast members. This is quite the ensemble, even though we spend, Most of our time, of course, with him, but we have Emily Blunt as his wife, Kitty, and Matt Damon as Leslie Groves, who's, uh, for context, he's the Army Corps of Engineer Director of the Manhattan Project. So he's he's pretty key. He's with us a lot throughout. His wife, Kitty, is also really important to us in, in the story as well, but you definitely get the sense that we're in the making of the bomb is is the driving force of the story so we spend the most time with those folks but yeah uh,
0: kitty we're gonna dig into how awesome she is mm because i just i love her character throughout this i also wanted to note that apparently matt damon was trying to take a break from acting Prior to yeah. this film being made, he was his wife had encouraged him of just like take a little. Br- I don't know how long it was going to be, but just you know take a year off or something like that. And he the only caveat he gave her was, look, but if Christopher Nolan calls me for anything, <laughs> I can't take this break. And sure enough, I think within a month or two, that's what happened. And he's out there making another movie with Christopher Nolan, and he's really good in this as well. He is really good in this, and and he
1: gets. Uh one of the few moments of levity in this whole thing. And I, and I love mm-hmm. how he delivers it so well, but, <laughs> but yeah, he does an incredible job. I don't think we really need to speak to what Emily Blunt and Matt Damon have done. Like you guys have seen them all over everywhere. They're incredible yeah. actors. Same thing with our, our next appearance by Robbie, Robert Downey Jr. He, he plays Lewis Strauss, who is the original, one of the originating members of the atomic energy commission, you know, again, historically accurate, interesting guy, truly is you know, kind of a nemesis of Oppenheimer for a lot of reasons, as we see in the film and others that we don't, you know, but he does. It's a very different turn, I think, for Robert Downey Jr. And he actually also is nominated as a Best Supporting Actor here as well. And I think it's for that reason. You know, it's it's not an Iron Man. You know what I mean? It's not a Tony Stark character. It's a very different character.
0: It reminds and this is not the the same situation, but it reminds me of, you know, when we were kids and we watched Jim Carrey do all these comedic roles and then Mm -hmm. he started to take on more dramatic things. And it's like, oh, I can't believe he did that or Robin Williams. I know Robert Downey Jr. is a very different actor than those folks. But after seeing him, you know, for the past two decades play very charismatic and confident sort of playboy characters outside of Tony Stark. You know, all his right. roles have been sort of that that vibe. To see him play insecure, chip on his shoulder, trying to sort of downplay his own heritage and make steps in America, but also be this sort of conniving, behind-closed-doors character. It's a, it's a well-earned nomination, considering what we've seen him do in the past.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. We'll dig into it more, like you said, but I think he he gives us a really radically different performance, and I think it's rooted in his interpretation of this real guy, right? And I think it's mm-hmm. an interesting take because not everyone has the same perception of this particular person. So I, I really enjoyed, yeah, watching how he how he performed it, but. We also have a really killer performance by Florence Pugh, who, even though, again, mm-hmm. is, is a very small character here, she's a, a, a notable one in, in. and I think she's that actress, right? Like, she's that actress who steals every scene that she's in. I think we mm-hmm. have seen that from everything that she's done, not least of which, like, she just was in the Black Widow for Marvel, but you wouldn't have expected her to steal the show in that in that film.
0: And I don't remember much about that movie, but I remember Florence Pugh. (laughs) I don't remember enjoying that film, but
1: that's, but that's what I'm saying. Like a lot of people didn't like that movie and, but universally she was the thing that you liked, right? She was the highlight. She can make something that people don't like really good is yeah, definitely what I'm saying. So she, she does an incredible job Mm -hmm. here. This is not a lighthearted role for her at all. It's also a very sad turn. Of this person she plays, Jean Tatlock, who was, uh, you know, one of the relationships in Oppenheimer's life, both in and out of his marriage. We'll get into that. Mm -hmm. But she is a really, really sad figure. And I think this is, again, an interesting turn for Florence Pugh as well. It's a very different role for her, too. And then we also have a bunch of other kind of cameo type figures that I won't get into. But the last one I will say, because I think it's such an impactful scene, is uh, Jason Clarke, who plays Roger Robb. He's the prosecutor of the security clearance yeah. hearing of of Oppenheimer. So and hateable, so fucking hateable. He does <laughs> such a great job, and he's yeah. You, you he's one of those I think truly like a character actor who plugs in in a lot of different places. And he always just does it so seam- seamlessly. You almost mm-hmm. don't notice that he's there, you know? And and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he blends so perfectly into
0: those characters. And yeah, this was, this was one of them. He did a really good job of, yeah, making me want to punch him in the fucking face. So yeah, it's interesting that we sort of we end up with almost two antagonists in this. And he's mm-hmm. definitely one of them, one of just the one who's on screen for the most and the one that you probably hate the most by the end. But I wanted to call out when you said we have this huge cast of characters, apparently a lot of folks who agreed to do this. Really, they just wanted to work with Nolan. And it was Mm -hmm. a lot of first-time actors working with him. And Nolan also felt it was important to sort of cast more recognizable faces to these roles Mm -hmm. because it's such a massive... of characters and you have scientists coming in and the different people from different countries and Mm -hmm. you're trying to keep track of all this and it's moving at such a quick pace that he thought it was important so just to list off a few you've got if you haven't seen this for some reason you got Josh Hartnett, Kenneth Branagh, Rami Malek, Jack Quaid, Casey Affleck fucking Gary Oldman shows up. So and then I think probably the the most important one, which is crazy to me, we get Albert Einstein playing himself, I think, in his first motion picture <laughs> appearance. And that was really cool. But yeah, all that to say, the cast and I apologize that I don't know offhand the guy who plays Albert Einstein because now I feel bad about that joke. But he's also very good. And it's crazy that all these these actors would just go out of their way to take these small single or two scene roles just to Mm -hmm. work with Christopher Nolan.
1: And I mean, that was true for even like Florence has a little bit more than two scenes, but she has a relatively small showing here. And she felt the same way. She told a story during, I guess, the press tour and was just saying like, he called me and apologized for the size of the role. And she was like, are you kidding me? Like, don't, I'll do, put me in the, put me in the back. Make me, I think she said like, make me, I don't care if I'm a floor lamp, like I'll be in the movie, you know? So there's a lot of respect (laughs) in the industry uh, of, of him and his filmmaking. He's just really, truly an incredible filmmaker. And he's just so precise. In the way that he develops his films, you know, with such commitment. They're they're truly really uh, you know, long-term detailed projects that kind of overtake his his life, right? And uh for the record, it's Tom
0: Conti who plays. I was literally Einstein's. Googling it on my phone as
1: well. <laughs> Were so i glad thank you
0: for calling it out. I was gonna say two things shout out tom conti second thing if you guys there's honey as i said on the rim of my drink so if you guys hear me throughout today's podcast like licking my fingers i apologize (laughs) i can't move away from this microphone you're welcome (laughs) to some of you
1: (laughs) it's true it is a it is an odd rim i'm not gonna lie but it it works (laughs) you know i'll take it so anyway all that to say awesome ensemble cast yeah lots of great cameos by some incredible folks and i do think it's a good move yeah to have these people who are recognizable because there is truly just really too
0: much to keep track of as far as who is who so i thought that was a really really good tool for sure agreed and i'm not i'm gonna do my best not to do this throughout the entire episode today but as i said we're doing this back to back killers of the flower moon so i watched Mm -hmm. both this week and Next week, you guys will get to hear me sort of critique some things about Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. And one of them was it is such a it's a similar thing. Massive cast, long mm-hmm. movie. And mm-hmm. I think by actually casting a lot of folks that weren't recognizable as they were in this, it makes some of that film very hard to follow. Yes. Of When they're back referencing different characters in this, you've got scientists Mm -hmm. in the first you know 45 minutes of the film making an appearance in hour one hour two coming back around in sort of the the trial and whatnot or hearing and it's important that we're able to connect all the dots there and i think that nolan's method here of of casting as we we spoke about really helps you to follow that plot
1: i agree yeah i think there are some notable comparisons between these two films and uh and we'll probably continue to make them hopefully without any spoiler f-ups We'll do our best. But really quick, I want to also call out the nominations for this film. Uh, Yes. 13 Oscar noms. 13 fucking Oscar noms. Okay. And so it was Best Picture, Directing, Supporting Actress, actor, Supporting Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, Production Design, Costume Design, Original Score, Makeup and Hair, and Best Sound, which I want to talk about the Best Sound piece for all kinds of reasons. But point is a lot uh, basically everyone is saying this is the best freaking movie we've seen let's nominate it for everything and notably it won at the globes for best actor supporting actor drama director score so not everything it was nominated for here
0: but it won a lot it won a lot and i think that's because it just speaks to how well-rounded this film is because Mm -hmm. Not a, it's a it's a period piece, right, in a way. So they have to sort of have those components of making things look accurate to the time period. You have mm-hmm. to have the costuming, the vehicles, all that stuff. We talked about that with the holdovers. like Having that on mm-hmm. point, you also have incredible performances. You have an incredible story. You have incredible visual effects. It's just this really, really well-rounded film that does a bunch of shit, and it does all of it really, really well.
1: And I think that's true of Christopher Nolan in general. I mean, he does... He makes good films. He just does. Right. Mm -hmm. But even again, his worst films have a a real quality to them and being well done. But this is maybe the one that feels, yeah, the most well-rounded probably. And, Uh, And and it showed in the box office as well, right? Like we obviously famously, you all I'm sure have heard of the Barbenheimer phenomenon that occurred when this movie (laughs) came out. And uh, and it it drove both of them to incredible success. But they are at uh, just under just shy of a billion dollars, unlike the Barbie movie. But nine hundred fifty eight million, but against a hundred million dollar budget, which is of course, sounds like a lot of money and it is a lot of money. But if you think mm-hmm. about what they did with this film in a short period of time, that's I mean, and what it made. Uh, it's obviously a huge box office success. So it resonated with people for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What else do you I guess before we get into big time spoiler territory, what can we say about this film? One thing that I guess I want to mention is sort of the the breakneck pace of it, because, mm-hmm. you, you know, you said almost a billion dollars and for a film that is three hours long you know if it's not a marvel movie that's shocking to me yeah Yeah. it just go 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 and i think that's probably what led to some of the box office success is yeah it 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 doesn't feel three hours long long. yeah there are such so few quiet moments in this where there's not the music to your point in the background. The score is almost constant throughout the film. We'll get into that later. But it's this just harrowing pace of there's not downtime. There's not a lot of silence. It segues from one scene Mm -hmm. right into the next, no hesitation. And it just powers and like steamrolls you for two hours and 50 something minutes.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I wonder how much of that translates from the production itself. Because that's actually something that Killian Murphy called out specifically of, he said that the pace of this filming process was Mm -hmm. insane. He called it insane. And it actually was, it was trimmed quite a bit. It had been planned. Pre-production planning had, you know, principal photography shooting for 85 days and they ended up cutting it down to 55 days. Like that is a huge trim of the schedule. And it was purely budget. It was, we can't do this with a hundred million dollars in this, in this length of time, we've got to trim the fat. And he just said like, he's in almost everything, as you know, he's in almost every single mm-hmm. moment, scene, everything. And so he was like, this was just an insane filming process. And I wonder how much of that translates to the edit, you know, was that the feel of the set, the feel of the story, because that was also the way that it was shot. You know, I, I, I think that would be a really
0: interesting question for Mr. Nolan, obviously, but I, I agree with you. The pacing is incredible. Well, tacking onto that and just piggybacking is this movie was not storyboarded in pre-production at all. So Mm -hmm. they didn't even plan out what the shots were going to, they just sort of got on set and followed their hearts for lack of a better term and made magic.
1: Yeah. I think they were able to Plan the production in a way that's surprising for not having storyboarded it. You know, like they—it's mm-hmm. it, all very efficient for not having storyboarded it. So, again, I think it just speaks to his skill set as a director. And, but yeah, a couple of fun nuggets for you guys before we get into spoilers. That you know, if you haven't seen it, it this is the first IMAX film to be done in black and white, and for parts mm. of that film, that film was actually developed. The IMAX black and white film was developed for this film. And it is shot on IMAX 65 millimeter and other 65 millimeter large format film. So it's, it's intended to be seen in this size, right? It is intended to be viewed in this large format. And I think it's cool that yet again, you know, Nolan's breaking ground with even just the film that he used for, for that, for the entire process. So that's just, uh, I think, a fun production nugget as well. And we'll get into some more deets later on about, uh, about various choices Nolan made throughout, but I think that's a fun one. But before we send you non-spoiler people on your way, Lamar, what's
0: your what's your takeaway? I mean, what's your review? Obviously, it sounds like you want people to go see it. I uh, yeah, if you haven't seen this, you need to watch it. Again, it might seem like a commitment to sit, but it does not feel like you're sitting through a three-hour film. I just I think it is a visual experience. It's one that I would encourage. It's going to be hard to sit there and be on your phone in your living room while you watch this. It's it's right. very, there are quieter moments, but it is just <laughs> driven from beginning to mm-hmm. end with various conflicts and uncomfortable conversations. And I, I think I was also surprised to what I said earlier of the way the film plays out. I mean... Everyone knows historically what actually ends up happening, but the big event that you think will be the climax of the movie is a little over halfway in. And then the rest of it is sort of following what we spoke about earlier of the rest of this guy's life, you know, people Mm -hmm. continued living and there were a lot of complications because of this event. So I think overall, just watch the damn movie. If you haven't yet, I don't think we're going to be spoiling a shit ton of stuff about it in the spoiler section. We're just going to get into the nitty gritty, but Mm -hmm. as far as like ratings go, I'm not going to give it anything less than a nine. I think for for me personally, because of the length, I don't think this is something that I'm going to watch a, a bunch more times in my life. Maybe I'll give it one or two more goes, but I, I'd say like a nine on a personal mm-hmm. level. I think if I'm rating it objectively from just if I was, you know, in the Academy or whatever, it'd be a 10. I think I don't think there's, there's very little to find wrong with it.
1: Right, right. Just on its face, you know, like there's right. Very few flaws. I agree. I think it's a really, really great film. My only, you know, point deduction, again, yeah, would be length. But even then, when I say that, I I wonder what you would cut, you know, Mm -hmm. because again, to your point, pacing, it's still telling relevant parts of the story. Every, Every moment feels important, Every yep. moment of this film feel, feel, feels important, even the slower moments, the pauses, because while this thing does have this incredible pacing, there are these moments of pause. There are these moments of really internal struggle that you get to view from his lens mm-hmm. for for some really, you know, length of time that is surprising, but I wouldn't cut them either. You know, I, I don't, I can't think of ones that I would cut. So yeah, I was, I was hovering at like an eight and a half or a nine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's definitely in that range. Cool. Nice. Well, obviously, we love this movie. Go watch it. And if you have already <laughs> seen it, stick around. But if you haven't, turn around. Don't drown. It's spoiler time. time. All right. Well, let's dig into it, man. Uh, I I'm down to just again to your point. I don't think we're gonna give away too much. Just even in the interest mm-hmm. of time, it's we're not gonna go through it point by point. It's also genuinely, guys, again, very hard to follow. <laughs> you know, linearly, at least you're yeah. gonna be. You're just jumping around because of these. Snapshots of his life at different points, and so I think it hard mm-hmm. makes it hard to go plot by plot point by plot point. Anyway, but I like that they cut co- they do cover it that way. And I want to tap into something you just said a second ago was, you know, life goes on. There's this mm-hmm. momentous climactic occasion that is has again literally changed the course of history of human history, humankind, and that cannot be overstated, right? Mm-hmm. But this is also just a man who had to go on living afterward, right? Yeah. And and how that impacts you mentally beyond the thing that you just did, but to have to go on living with the repercussions of what you have done, with the what that has science has opened the door to. Like this is a really it's frankly to me very incredible that he was able to go on living. I and I don't say that I don't say that lightly because I understand what that means, but how hard must it have been, truly, to to go on living after something like this? So, yeah, I think to your point, they deal with so much more in the back half mm-hmm. of that part, the human mm-hmm. experience of it.
0: Yeah, it's the the structure itself of how they weave together these different timelines. And I think, again, the first time I saw it. It was a little disorienting. I couldn't mm-hmm. really understand why some scenes were in black and white. And then you sort of figure out, you know, an hour into the movie. Okay. So when we're seeing it from Strauss's point of view, we're getting these black, black and white scenes of how Strauss is interpreting. Because even at the end, we get the the color version of the Einstein interaction. Mm-hmm. So if it's in black and white. You're getting his perspective and how much of it is interpretation of how what he hears. I'm not really sure. I don't know if that's even worth digging into, but it's cool that you get that and then you get the color sequences with Oppenheimer himself, but then you also get multiple timelines of that because you're getting the lead up to the bomb being constructed and the fallout from that. And I, that's not the best term to use, but like the literal fallout of just, you know, (laughs) what ends up happening with him in the scientific community and whatnot. But you get also the sort of the middle future where it's him at the hearing and him being interrogated and sort of them questioning all these things. And what you said, if he had to keep on living with this thing that he had done and he sort of questioned the morality of it and like, what have I really done? And then to be double questioned by the country that you helped to construct this to ensure that this would be remain sort of this superpower and we would be at the forefront of like Nobody fuck with us. We have the strongest weapons in the world. You just saved our asses. And then to be sort of pariah, like made a pariah and sent out because of that, it's just crazy to think about.
1: I mean, this really is the beginning of what we understand to be the peak of the arms races, the various Mm -hmm. arms races that humanity has always had, right? I mean, since the dawn of humanity and history and war, we're always coming up with more creative and efficient ways to kill each other and how horrifying Mm -hmm. is that right Mm -hmm. and this is like the true climax of the that as a people and he is in the thick of that and you are seeing him contend with that and you're seeing us as a government you know the way that we historically handled that power and that knowledge and that you know that door that we were opening and it's you know it leads directly into you know things like the doomsday clock of that, that was a very real fear because this power just kept getting bigger and bigger and more dangerous. And what we see him really wrestle with, grapple with in this film is you can't make this, this science or this bomb theoretically. You're making it for real and then it is no longer a theory. It is no longer an abstract. It is a real tool that he saw we would always find a reason to use, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's the thing that he really contended with and I think is really the, the moral center of this film, of him contending with, beginning with this naivety almost of, if we do this, if we develop this, then we're going to prevent further development by, the Soviets, or even by us because the risk will be too great. Everyone will be too afraid of the right. fallout, to your point. But that's not what happens. And he learns, I think, a lot about humanity as a result that he, I think, was unprepared for, unprepared for that yeah. reality and then has to deal with it. And I mean, yeah, how, how do you respond to that in a moment where you've already – Set yourself on this path, you
0: know. Yeah, I think it, it. I think it's Borgman that delivers that line near the end where he says, "You know, we've built the biggest bomb in the world. Like, no, who's what's going to happen now?" And he's, he says, "Until somebody builds a bigger one." Until That's pretty a much one. what we've been on. And sometimes I think we forget the world that we live in. Of you know, there was a a president who shall not be named, and when those four years were, I was acutely more aware of oh, nuclear war could happen at. Anytime, time still Any
1: fucking minute you know
0: we feel like we're in this stalemate and it is you know the doomsday clock that you mentioned and all that it, it, it's a very scary and so seeing the moral quandary that that went into the the construction of this weapon and whatnot uh definitely very captivating
1: and i think it's important to note that he really does not only grapple with this but his it's it's captured in this film a bit but i i don't know how and I don't mean this as a criticism, I just mean I don't think we delve deep into the fact that he spends the rest of his life trying to slow this type of progress, mm-hmm. try to slow mm-hmm. this type of development. He has seen, again, that we will not restrain ourselves from using something like this. And and a huge part of his his feud with Strauss, both in and out of the film, is that Strauss wants to keep going, wants to keep developing this this technology. And he sits in a very powerful position to make that happen. And, you know, and meanwhile, Oppenheimer is actively fighting against the development of the hydrogen bomb and is saying, no, like we can't keep, that's a thousand times stronger than the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And they Mm want to just keep going with it. And he looks at the devastation of that and goes, and we see that moment in this film. And that's the thing that I just think is done so viscerally in this film like that moment of understanding the, what they have done mm-hmm. understanding the part he's played in the the murder of innocent people to a previously yet untapped scale you know to understand that he did that and that moment is so visceral i think in this film and he and he does he says the famous line of Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds.
0: And how could you not feel that way? Yeah, but to lighten the mood a little bit, it was fun to learn that he was having sex with this girl. And that's where he discovered that quote. She's like, hey, let me take a break from sex, check out your bookshelf real quick, judge you, and then make you read. And it just so happened. Like he must have told that was a great bar story for him, I bet. But
1: <laughs> I just want that to be really how he found it. You know what I mean? Like, I just want that to be the true story. Yeah. I don't know that it is or not, but I'm, I'm going to take it. I'm going to just yeah. run with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tall tale like Paul Bunyan. But anyway, <laughs> I wanted to spin off of what you said, because we we spoke in the spoiler free section about sort of the sound in this, the music, the, the score. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I was tracking it this time of... I want to say 90 to 95% of this film has the score in the background of like every scene. It's just like, it's It's not a music video, but it is like a gripping ride set to this Mm -hmm. sort of backing track. The only couple of times where we really don't have any sound in the background are to your point of saying, you know, that that visceral moment where he realizes what he's done. There's two there's when they set off the test bomb, And it Mm -hmm. goes, the film is actually silent for about 60 or 90 seconds. And all you hear is- Completely,
1: completely silent. Yeah. I
0: don't think that can be overstated.
1: It was, you could hear a pin drop.
0: Yeah. And again, that's an hour and 45 minutes into the film. So you've been at this breakneck pace. And then to finally have the moment where this bomb is going off for the first time and everything goes quiet and you just hear him breathing, like taking it in and that's all you get I that get moment stuck
1: with me just talking about it
0: yeah and the second one is when he's giving the the speech to celebrate for lack of a better term you know oh, the God, bombing in Japan and i forgot what happened there Mm-hmm. Until it happened again. And the the scream, when it goes quiet and you hear the ladies scream, I that's blood cur- Like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But then for him to, he's sort of still continuing to deliver his speech, but you you see the audience cheering, but there's no sound coming out of their mm-hmm. mouths. You see the lights of that. And that's another thing that's done really well in this, of mm-hmm. just the, the lighting and whatnot of the ex- theoretical explosions going off in that room. You see the one woman whose face is, healing essentially and that is mm-hmm. you know not so fun fact but interesting fact that's actually christopher nolan's daughter in that yep. scene and yep. I th- he said something about how
1: he did when that you're purpose. building
0: yeah yeah he said you know when you're building this type of thing that can cause destruction you have to think about the fact that it can be used against the ones you love so maybe that mm-hmm. was me you know recognizing that in a way right
1: right and i think i mean plus 10 to all of that number one number two i think there's a couple things to note is that i think this is nolan's best use of sound Mm -hmm. and i say that specifically because of these scenes but also because historically if you are a christopher nolan fan you know that there's a lot of contention with his use of sound actually you know a lot of people struggle with the way that he handles sound and sound editing in his films. Hmm. Many people complain you can't hear dialogue in a lot of his films. Dunkirk, for example, I saw that in theaters and it was unhearable. Dialogue was unhearable. And it was more that he said, like, this is how this would sound in real life. Like, he, he has really fought against his detractors about the audio in his films. He has said, like this is an intentional choice. I'm aware that I could do it differently. I'm not going to. And, you know, and so it's, it's interesting that he, I I don't want to say took that criticism in and did it differently this time. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that is why, because again, he's been very adamant about the way that he uses sound purposefully. But I do feel like this was one that you hung on every word, you didn't miss a minute. And it was also to your point, there is a score going on in the background. And he hasn't always historically mixed those this way evenly this way. There is a very significant balance here where you can hear the music, but you can hear the the dialogue as well. And that's not very typical of his work. I think it's worth taking a look at. But the other the other point you made of that scene where he's giving the speech you know that again i can't think of almost any other word to describe it other than visceral because mm-hmm. i think you can feel in that moment or as close as you possibly can as a as a viewer of this moment i feel like you can feel what he must have been feeling and i think that's just such a that's such a testament to the filmmaking that is such a powerful skill to be able to transport you to make you feel that anxiety that utter guilt the burden of everything that he's dealing with and like i can you can just truly imagine being this person trying to give this speech and trying to breathe and trying to not see the room shake and the people's faces mm-hmm. melt and feel the pressure and the sweat and the, and the burden of everything that has just happened and i just think he captures that so incredibly it's almost indescribable how well that is done i think both from a filmmaking perspective on the part of nolan but also of course killian murphy's performance
0: in that scene mm-hmm. is just yeah bar none. The, the, the visuals in this are, are incredible uh i think that's as i said that goes along with just the, the pacing of this there's so many cutaways to just random you know explosions or things like different things happening and what he's sort of envisioning in his head oppenheimer And yeah, it drives the film. It's really interesting. I do want to transition a little bit, though. Uh, I'm curious to get your take on sort of the the women in Oppenheimer's life, the two specific ones that we meet here. Mm -hmm. Because I think they, I think the first time through, I didn't follow that story as well as I wanted to, or maybe I didn't give them enough credit for how much they do drive the story forward. And then on this rewatch, I really took in the performances and found a, a, a better appreciation of how much they play into his development as a person and how the story ultimately plays out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I sort of struggle that with that in this movie, to be honest, because I don't think that they're truly done a lot of justice in this mm-hmm. film as far as being credited with being the people they were in his life. And I, I, you could definitely make the argument that Nolan is making that a purposeful choice, right? Again, we're so almost tunnel visioned into Oppenheimer's experience and his lens and his view. And, and that maybe that's, maybe that's intentional for a reason. But I also think that these people obviously had a major impact on him. For example, with Jean Tatlock, you know, she does, they do handle that moment in a really profound way of when she, you know, trigger warning discussion of suicide, but there, she, she, she decides that to take her own life. And, and you see that she is a very unstable character, right? And that was true for her. So I, I would say mm-hmm. that's not a trope. I will give Nolan credit. Like he's not just making the women in the movie crazy, which we yeah. see happen all too often. She, she really was a, a mentally had a lot of challenges and had some instability there. So And she does do this. She does kill herself this way. And I think the other more impactful moment of that is it really does affect Oppenheimer this way we don't know for sure that this is exactly the scene right the scene between him and kitty him running off into the you know riding his horse off into the woods and having this breakdown i don't know that we know that that explicitly happened that way but we do know that it had a profound impact on him as a person
0: well speaking of things that we don't know if they happen or not were you aware of like the conspicuous circumstances potentially behind her death yeah
1: I, I was sort of vaguely aware that there is, there's some yeah conspiracy theories yeah. around that.
0: When I was watching this the second time too, the the concept of somebody taking sleeping pills and simultaneously drowning themselves in a tub, I, mm-hmm. I was very confused by that decision. Uh, you know, just from a logical I guess perspective. Of I didn't know if you could actually do that or not, like if it would be physical. But then I went online and sort of was looking into it and there were based on all the sort of political drama that's going on in this of communism and socialism and blah, blah, blah. And obviously this is during the McCarthy era and it's very Mm -hmm. scary for people to speak their political beliefs. There are some folks who think that she didn't kill herself, that she was killed for sort of being a part of these parties. And I didn't see this on rewatch. So feel free to fact check me all, but you know, in, in facts online, they say that one, should we see multiple takes of her, you know, dying in the tub, essentially. And apparently in one of the shots, there is a gloved hand pushing her head down into the water. So it's kind of giving you these multiple versions of how this could have happened, which I thought was, again, from a historical context when we don't know exactly what happened. Interesting to put that in there, too.
1: I think it's an interesting take for sure. And I did also read about that. And I understand why people think that. I also think it can be explained by once you've she, has, she had tried before for context, historically, Jean mm. Tatlock, the person, had truly tried to, to take her own life per- previously, and it didn't work. And I think once you make that choice, truly make that choice as a person, you, you want to make sure that it works, you know? So I think that she was just really, truly committing to, like, this is not going to be an accident this time. That doesn't work out, right? And that's my take on it, not because I don't think that things like that happen. Like I, I think that it's entirely possible. Um, yeah. But I also just think that we don't know. We just don't yeah. know the answer to that. And I don't, but I do think it's interesting that in the art form, it leaves it open to interpretation. And I I like that because I think that Nolan does that a lot in a lot of his films, right? He lets you decide you know, think about the end of Inception, right? He kind of lets you decide where you mm-hmm. think this is going. You know, what, what do you think really
0: happened? And uh, I think it's a really interesting choice for sure. Yeah, this is God, this is a bummer of an episode. <laughs> Sorry, all It really is um, sad. Because literally, I think three or four days ago, I don't know how I stumbled. I was on Reddit and went down like a rabbit hole. Of, and I don't even know how I got to this. But they were talking about folks who had Jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge since that's like one of the places Mm -hmm. where typically people in that area—it's somewhere that people find it, I guess, most convenient or most tempting if you're trying to off yourself. And how many of the folks that survive the fall eventually say, "Hey, that was my biggest regret. Like I realized on the way down how little all my other problems. I'm so glad that I survived." But there is one woman, and there's multiple cases of people who didn't work the first time. One woman went back and did it again, like years Mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. So to your point of like she had already tried this. I'm I'm in agreement with you just based on it is some, some people, depression is crazy. These different mental illnesses are crazy. And yeah, sometimes people just want out no matter what. Right. They make you do things that don't make sense externally, you know,
1: but I think speaking, I mean, back to your point about the one, it is a super bummer episode, but one of the things (laughs) I think is true of the, of the women in this film is that their performances are incredible and their Mm -hmm. position in his life is really critical. But I also think it's a fair criticism of Nolan in general to say that his films are a little bit of a bro club. A lot of them are centered around male stories, male lenses, and don't Mm -hmm. often bring in a lot of female support and uh, female viewpoints. So I think that stays true here with one notable exception of Kitty And I think, you know, played by Emily Blunt again, she, she has this really powerful scene where she's being interrogated by this Mm -hmm. attorney, again, played by Jason Clark, where they're really, really trying to make that communist connection. Because as we know, that was all the ammunition you needed back then to just ruin somebody's life. And so he is trying to go toe to toe with what he perceives to be just a housewife. Right, Mm -hmm. He thinks she's just a housewife. She's not anything special. She's not an intellectual. She's not the person making the bomb. So she couldn't possibly be all that smart. And I think what you see in the scene executed so beautifully is that she can hold her own here and not only hold her own, if not take the win, right? Like she is just as smart as her husband in different ways. She is Mm -hmm. just as valuable a person. She is shown to be this truly powerful individual in this moment, and she is not going to let this guy fuck around with her. And I I love that moment. I love that performance. I love that (laughs) for women in his films. This was needed,
0: I think. Yeah, I think that seeing her at in her first couple of scenes, my first thing that I wrote down was like, God damn, any woman named Kitty just loves to party. You know, she loves to party. Cause she just the first couple <laughs> scenes, she is just going hard. And then there's the scene where he comes home to her and the baby's crying and she's trying to be affectionate. And he asks why she's not taking care of the kid. Once right. again, reminding us that babies are terrible. But <laughs> aside from that, Seeing her in the early scenes, you think that she is sort of this a mess in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. like a, a to your like about tropes of just oh mm-hmm. it's this you know mess of a wife who like isn't taking care of the kid and her husband's neglecting her and blah blah blah. But to see her develop and t- to harden to the world and to see her push back on not only Oppenheimer but also on the lawyers and the other folks involved and giving him some shit of like why are you letting why are you so content to be the martyr in this situation why are you letting them walk all over you why did you Mm -hmm. shake this guy's hand who just betrayed you Mm -hmm. so when she finally gets that that chance to shine there and just walks all over just undresses him up and down it's it's fantastic to see and it's a very like if we're bringing it back, a very you go girl kind of moment. I think we can bring that back. So <laughs> we can bring that back for Kitty. We can do anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, she does an incredible job, and I agree with you. I think I would. One thing I would add on to what you said though was, you know, the trope of the of the mom who's a mess or whatever, and she's partying hard at the beginning. There, I think what you're seeing, to be honest, is a woman beholded to society's expectations that she procreate mm. and be a mother and yeah I don't think she wanted to right I think that's what right. we're trying to say here right is she did her duty the thing that she had to do but she wasn't trying she wouldn't have probably been a mother if she had been born in a different era that didn't expect that of her right I think she right. has more quote unquote important things to do with her life from her perspective, I believe than to raise a baby. And I think that's a perfectly valid viewpoint. And it's something that women in certain eras were not given the autonomy really to do. You were unfulfilled. You had no value as a person if you didn't check this box, right? And I think that that's what they're showing here. They're showing this woman who doesn't want to do this thing that she was expected to do. And I, yeah, like I said, I like that you see her grow and you harden and get to this moment of standing fully in herself
0: at the end. Yeah. I love that for her. She, I, I like the way you put that. I like that she's, she's not just defending her husband, she's defending their family, their existence, the things that they've been through, the decisions they've made. And I think that seeing shortly before that, that uncomfortable moment where Oppenheimer is figuratively and literally undressed in that scene where he's being interrogated. And it does that, that shot is incredible where it sort of pans around and suddenly he's undressed as he was when he was having his affair. Mm-hmm. It's cutting back and forth between, you know, the, the romantic scenes with, with his uh, girlfriend gene, yeah, and then coming back to this and seeing The reaction from Kitty in that moment where, Mm -hmm. you know, the Florence Pugh's character appears there. They're having sex in front of her. They make eye contact. It's you see how uncomfortable she is with having to hear this line of questioning. So, again, it is so nice when she gets a chance to sort of give them some comeuppance.
1: And she does it in spite of what is clearly this betrayal she was unaware of right? Mm -hmm. Like, she knew that they had a relationship to some degree. And she definitely knew about the relationship predating her. But she didn't know that it overlapped her. And this is her seeing that in real time. And she walks out of the room. And it leaves hanging in the air the question of, is she going to defend him later? Or is she gonna let him Mm -hmm. be humiliated by this panel? And, and I she does it to your point, as much for him as she does it for her. She doesn't She doesn't let them do that to him, at least not in that way. His security clearance, spoiler alert, does get pulled. You know, he loses his influence and he loses this hearing. But it was, I mean, you can see from the get go, it's a farce. So she doesn't, she knows that probably deep down as well. And she doesn't let that stop her from saying Mm -hmm. what needs to be said uh, on their behalf. Yeah. So I think, I think it's a very worthy moment in the film. And it's one of the ones not of levity, but of hope. And there are not many in this movie, despite how great it is. There's just not many.
0: (laughs) Right, right. I think moving on, I don't have much more in my notes, if I'm being honest. I think there's a couple smaller conversations. I wonder if in the scientific community, like students at sort of like these prestigious schools and also shout out to Princeton. I used to live like five minutes from there. So some of this was actually (laughs) filmed there on site. But Mm -hmm. I wonder if some folks in the scientific community, if all these different characters, word, if it's like, oh shit, like I feel like it's me watching Iron Claw and seeing all these rustlers from the 80s. I'm like, oh yeah. shit, it's Ric Flair, it's Harley Race. If they're like, oh shit, it's Borgman, oh it's this guy, like just marking out for like all these different characters from history. But outside of that, I think the only other thing that I really wanted to mention was the theme of importance throughout this, because the word itself, and I didn't pick up on this until the second time again, but The word important comes up five or six times during this, and you kind of have these two characters of Oppenheimer and Strauss competing with each other, and it seems like Oppenheimer could give it, it, what's the quote where, you know, if it were Strauss saying, you know, I feel sorry for you. Oh, it's from Mad Men, but Mm. like the, I feel sorry for you when I think about you. Oppenheimer, I feel like, would be like, well, I don't think about you at all he doesn't give two shits about Strauss. Meanwhile, Strauss seems to have this chip on his shoulder and is constantly trying to outdo and impress the scientific community. He gets, you know, sort of shrugged off by Einstein, tries to talk to him. There's these lines of, oh, you were a lowly shoe salesman. And he says, I was just a shoe salesman. And then later in the film, he refers to himself of like, I'm not going back to being a lowly shoe salesman. So there's this just air of self-importance versus being actually important which again is directly pulled from the film and i found that pretty fascinating this time through
1: i i think that's i think that's such a huge thing to point out here is that he did have these really humble beginnings but he needs the scientific community and i think you see this in the film to your point to be aware of his natural intelligence Mm -hmm. And that he could have been like them. And I think that's where you see this chip on the shoulder, because he actually was accepted, you know, to I think it's Princeton, actually, I can't remember, but he was accepted into a program for physics. He was actually really quite obsessed with physics in his childhood. He devoured books on on physics uh, and and, uh, engineering and all these things. He was actually a really intelligent guy, but he became a quote-unquote shoe salesman because that was his father's business and it was floundering and it was going to leave them without a a way to survive is what it came down to. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so he had to forego his his later education – To help his family. And I think you see in this film, although they don't explain it, the chip on his shoulder and the resentment that stems from that of like, I could have been an Oppenheimer. I could have been an Einstein. I could have been a Heisenberg if I had been able to go pursue the education that I wanted to. And I think he finds avenues for influence a very backwards way. So that he can still, to your point, feel important and be important, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't how he originally wanted to do it. I think is the crux of the matter, and so you see that
0: play out here between them and and their relationship for sure. Yeah, you see how he develops into a pretty damn good politician instead Mm -hmm. of a scientist, and he's playing this sort of backdoor game of fucking people over and trying to get his way and grab you know any anything he can get over the head of the people that he sees himself as competition with when really he's not even in their league when it comes to, you know, the entire community of scientists mm-hmm. thinks he's a fucking ass. So yeah, yeah I, I dug that a lot. I think it's also, there's reference to, you know, even Einstein after a while, it's crazy to think about the fact that they say, oh, he, you know, he was the best scientist of his time, but it's been 40 years since he wrote that. And right. I think Einstein sort of owns that. And says he kinda of went through the same thing of I was scared of what I had unearthed, and you're mm-hmm. eventually gonna feel this same sort of struggle. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's interesting to think about that Einstein had a a decline from right, you know, his Because you don't the things think about any for. of these
1: people. Yeah, you don't think of any of these people as having a decline. You don't think of mm-hmm. an Oppenheimer even I mean, we we again we even if you vaguely know the history, like you don't think of him having had a decline. He did this incredible, if not terrifying, but incredible thing. He achieved this incredible thing. And you just don't think about that. And I love that, you know, you see that conversation with him and Einstein where Einstein, to your point, warns him, like, I've been through this with you before. And what's going to happen is they're going to punish you for a long time. And when they feel they've punished you enough, they're going to give you an award. (laughs) But that, award will be about them rewarding themselves, giving right. themselves an award. It's not going to be about you, but they're going to give you one later. And it, and it's become, I mean, it's very prescient. He knows exactly what's going to happen because he's been through it. And, and it becomes, to, it turns out to be completely accurate. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, the, again, what's the, the book is called The Triumph and Tragedy. Right. Like that's the, the triumph and the tragedy of his life is that he is truly brilliant he did this incredible thing but it is a truly tragic thing and it's something he had to live with for the rest of his life and and i think only people who have been in these same moments can truly understand the weight of that and i think you see that one last scene i did want to touch on i think you see that in his interaction interaction with truman Truman's the guy Mm -hmm. who ultimately gives the order, right? Like he's the president, he's commander in chief. He's the one who says, yep, drop these bombs. And, you know, and then we, again, develop more bombs. He doesn't in this scene acknowledge any of the responsibility of that. He calls Oppenheimer a crybaby, tells him to wipe off the blood, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't feel the same sense of responsibility. And I think it's a stark contrast.
0: I don't know that it's that he doesn't feel the responsibility. I think it's that he's discompassionate to it. I think he's fine with me. He sees it as a as a strategic move in war. So like what? Yeah, they would do the same to us. So clearly, I don't I know I did it. I take credit, but I don't feel guilty for it.
1: Right. No, I, th- I I misspoke. You're right. I mean the guilt. He doesn't feel the guilt. Oh, got it.
0: Yes. He doesn't
1: feel the guilt of that of that decision. He feels, yeah. He feels justified in that decision. I agree. But I think it says like if you are incapable of feeling that guilt, I
0: think right, that
1: says a lot about you. And uh, and I think it speaks to Oppenheimer's humanity that he does, and and it, it weighs on him for the rest of his life. But all that to say, I think that this gets all these incredibly difficult themes across in this Mm -hmm. whole film. And while you are really, it's heavy and you feel the heaviness of it, leaving the theater somehow you don't feel just straight up depressed. There's, there's a real art to how he put this story together in a way that you don't leave just completely (laughs) deflated, you know? Yeah. It feels like you just witnessed. Yeah. A real,
0: a real piece of art, you know? It, I wanted to touch on that. I'm glad you said that because it's it's not a happy ending. It's this really, especially the, the final 30 seconds or so, where it's just you're looking at the possibilities of what this invention could eventually cause. So it's hard to walk out of this not feeling a bit uneasy. But at the same time, it's this I, I'm not going to use the word like it's hard to come up with a better word than like a triumph of what. This group of geniuses did together in this short amount of time. And it, it's a bummer how it ends up playing out on their consciences. But and to the some, point not earlier, all, though. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And I mean, it, I read that, and this is not going to put any happier spin, but apparently. Oppenheimer's security clearance was posthumously reinstated a few years yeah. ago. And they're like, like really, okay, we were wrong. Cause we know a movie's coming out like fuck off. But, but
1: also like what functional <laughs> need did that fucking serve? Right, he didn't have right. access to things in his lifetime, which is what security clearance is for. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, it's so stupid. It's so stupid. Yeah.
0: Agreed. Agreed. But yeah. So I mean, we could go on and on about this one, I think. But I I actually think the fact that we can talk about this three hour film for about an hour is pretty much speaks to it doesn't feel bloated. It doesn't. Again, the pace and the way that it's structured make it pretty easy to follow. You can pick up on all these themes. You would you know who the characters are, you know what you're excited mm-hmm. about you know what you're sad about and you know what the the major takeaways are so the fact that it's wrapped up in that neat package and we can get through it in an hour I think speaks to just how good this film is
1: yeah I think it's a it's a master class in filmmaking honestly mm-hmm. and it's really a, a, again a heavy but enjoyable watch and that's that is a dichotomy that is very hard to achieve right and I think it says a lot as well that you would be willing to go back and watch it, which I don't think everyone will be right. Like it's different, different strokes for different folks. But for me, I would be willing to watch this again. You know what I mean? It's just so powerfully done and well done that even though it is hard and it is heavy, it it's, it's masterful filmmaking is undeniable. So definitely worthy of a watch again. Double tapping on those super high ratings, uh mm-hmm. you know, eight and a half, nine. It's, it's, you know, but yeah. to your point, especially as part of the Academy, it's a ten
0: out of ten film. I agree. Yes, yeah. I, again, that nine rating of mine is on a purely personal level. I give tens to the movies I know I can rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thanks for hanging with us for this one because we know it was a heavy <laughs> one for
0: sure. Thank God um, we're going to lighten things up next week.
1: Yeah, so light with come back and listen (laughs) to our best director selection, which is Killers of the Flower Moon, and I also. I mean, in a way, it's, it's
0: their fault. I was they literally own. about
1: to say, you took the words out of my mouth. You guys, it's <laughs> your fault. What did you think was going to happen? You nominated <laughs> these incredibly heavy movies, but yeah, actually, to that point, we have our last poll going on for the final selection, which will be the best picture option. Uh, it, it was it, it's between American Fiction and Barbie, so we'll let you know next week what it turns out to be. It's gonna yeah, be I'm, I'm, I'm,
0: fingers crossed it's Barbie, not because I don't want to watch American fiction, but I just, I'm going to need something lighter. And I mean, Barbie is heavy in its own way, but I, I need to laugh a little bit more yeah. in the next one yeah. that I watch. American fiction
1: is also funny just to okay. make everybody okay. feel better. It, it It is also light. I think I'm glad that we are down to two light options, but mm-hmm. I will say if we don't get to talk about Barbie for this one. I'm going to be real upset about it. Not going (laughs) to lie. And I love both of these movies, by the way. So that's saying something anyway, but for now, go have a drink and watch a thing. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.